All right, what's up everybody? So today is a video that uh, I was called out for by our fellow YouTuber, Natural Hypertrophy, going over things that I've been wrong on and admitting what I've been incorrect about and uh, talking about things that I've changed my mind on. So the reason it's taken me so long to make this video is because I'm really not wrong that often. I'm basically always correct. Uh, in reality, I did miss when he called me out. I must have missed that part of the video. Uh, and I did have someone remind me of that in the comments, so I checked it out, saw that video, and then uh, put together a bit of a list. I have six things here that I was wrong about and that I have changed my mind on. One little asterisk to go with this video is just because I may have changed my mind on something doesn't necessarily mean uh, what I believed or what I talked about or promoted beforehand was necessarily wrong or bad or incorrect. Two things can be true, and I can change my stance on something uh, and, and refine it in certain ways. So not everything I have on here is just like entirely incorrect and garbage. And if I say a lift or say something that you still believe, I'm not telling you to change your philosophy entirely, but I'm gonna give you my reasoning for refining and or changing uh, each position that I hold on these specific topics. So the first one I've got here is recomping. So this is a bit of an interesting one where for a long time, we've kind of been led to believe that the only way to make solid progress is a cut in a bulk cycle and a recomp won't do a whole ton. In recent years, that's changed a bit, uh, but even since having my channel, it hasn't even been two years yet, I was still a pretty big advocate of just purely sticking to cut in bulk cycles. And this isn't me saying that cut in bulk cycles aren't worth doing because I do think they are uh, a very efficient and practical and time-tested way to build muscle and then shed some fat to continue bulking. Uh, and I'll never be against that, but I did usually say recomping was a bit of an inferior option. And part of that might be just because so much of the fitness industry is consisting of people that are already lean, where recomp just isn't really a viable option because you don't really have much to work with and it wouldn't last very long. You couldn't really detect progress anyways. But for somebody that generally tends to hang out around 18, 17, 16 to like 20, 21% body fat myself, um, it is a pretty viable option if I want to put my bulk on pause or just lean out without having to actually go through the lifestyle changes of entering a cut. I'm still early enough in my training to where I can still recomp effectively. It's not like I'm trying to scratch and claw for one to two pounds of muscle a year. I still have a fair amount left to gain. I'm not a noob anymore. Obviously I've been training for seven years and I have a good amount of muscle, a good base, but I, I think I still have enough in the tank to where I can make a successful recomp happen. I think people in the same boat as me can do the same. So recomping is absolutely a viable option. And the biggest thing that I like about recomping is it's just so lifestyle friendly. You don't have to cut calories and worry about any social gatherings or events you go to. Uh, you can just kind of keep your diet at what your brain and your body wants it to be, which is maintenance. So viable option, very sustainable, very easily, very easy, not easily, mentally. Uh, and it's just something that is extremely practical and it keeps your appetite in check too. Like I know after a, a pretty solid cutting phase, I just get starving towards the end and I'm pretty sure everybody's like that too, where it's very easy to just rebound and kind of lose the whole point of your bulk. So even with a mini cut cycle, you can go through a mini cut, but it's almost like that prolonged hunger lingers around into the first month, two months of the bulk because you're still very lean and you're still, you still feel like you're starving. So viable option. I'm a huge fan of recomps. Uh, 
I would say as a general rule of thumb, you don't want to do them when you're too lean. I'm not going to give hard guidelines on that, but maybe if you're under 16, 17% body fat, probably not as effective, but maybe still doable, especially if you're closer to 16 or 17. But I'd say for most of the guys around 20%, even a little higher, extremely viable option. And when it stops, when it stops working, so when the recomp stops being effective, it's usually for one reason because you're lean enough now, or you're just not training properly. So uh, hopefully it's not the latter. Number two, uh, I've changed my mind on being surgical with your training performance. However, you can't let it control you. And in the past, I think I've been overly critical of uh, training performance in general and worrying a whole ton about it. This is one of those things where there's such a fine line between being detail-oriented and surgical and analytical with your training performance and just letting it completely control you and dictate your decisions and how you train. You can't let your training performance control you. Absolutely not. And that will basically turn you into a product of your program instead of your program adapting to what you want. Um, I don't know if I worded that correctly, but hopefully you get what I mean. Basically what my channel's been about since day one. If you're able to find that happy medium and use the actual performance of your training to your advantage to understand your rates of progression and if you're plateauing uh, and if you're making much progress or how a lift is working for you, there's a huge benefit in using this. It's just as useful as something like measurements, body weight, progress pictures, if not a little bit more useful because you can see changes in your actual training a little bit quicker than it might appear on a tape measure or on a body weight scale. Um, it's just, it's about keeping balance ultimately. And it's so tough because as humans, we like to be extreme in certain ways or we like to be black and white. So it's like if you're if you're bulking, you're committed to bulking. If you're getting stronger, you're committed to getting stronger. If you're getting bigger, you're committing to getting bigger. But with training performance, you're not just completely committed to training performance. You're kind of committed to it, but not you're you're one foot in, one foot out. You're using it as a tool, but you're not letting it dictate everything that you do regarding your program and your training. So it's a really interesting kind of paradox. Ultimately, I think if you can be not emotionally attached, but maybe more logically attached to your to your training performance, it becomes a pretty useful tool. The key is to not let it consume you because I've made that mistake in the past and it is a terrible place to be in because ultimately, I know it's a bit of a slippery slope, but take myself for an example, I've told you the entire story a thousand times, you, you're probably bored of it at this point, but it turned me from a bodybuilder to a powerlifter because the performance-oriented mindset taken to the extreme is something that powerlifting generally is striving towards. Number three, I also used to always track performance, and this might sound a little bit counterintuitive if you just listened to point number two, but for point number three, I used to be a very big advocate of always tracking performance. If you're going to track it on your big, heavy compound lifts like the squat bench deadlift, you should be doing it for the quote-unquote smaller lifts. So the lighter stuff like your isolation work, your arm training, side delt training, that kind of stuff. Uh, and I'm not necessarily saying that you should bias your training towards what lifts you track, and I'll touch more on this in a second. But overall, with uh, always tracking performance, there are some lifts that are more of a pain to track than the benefits that you even get from tracking that lift. I don't, 
I worded that really weirdly. That I did not say that correctly. I'm super tired, so bear with me here. But what I'm trying to say is some lifts, the, the hassle that it is to track a certain lift might not even be worth tracking it in the first place because there's not much benefit you'll get out of it because the progression from that lift where it's not very standardized might be a little bit blurry at best. So this can lead you to neglect lifts that aren't easily standardized. And I've actually noticed this to a degree in my own training uh, where I do tend to bias lifts that I can track and standardize really well. The problem with this is that the lifts that are potent and beneficial for hypertrophy while a lot of them will be easily standardized, there's a lot you're leaving on the table if you're not really taking the lifts that aren't easily standardized seriously. So to put that in simpler terms, something like a preacher curl is great for biceps because you can track it very well. It's length and biased. I could go on and on about the preacher curl. It's very black and white if I get a rep or if I fail it. It's very easy to track on paper. But if you take something like, say, a spider curl, this is a lift that's also great for the biceps, but it's much harder to track because peak resistance is basically right at the lockout. So what is the lockout? Nobody knows. There's no clear to find a lockout on a spider curl, and that's what makes it so hard to track. So what if you say, all right, well, if you just get it up to a little bit past parallel, what happens if you're half an inch below that or a half an inch below that, an inch below that? It's like there's no clear way to draw the line. And then you could even say, well, let's just track reps that you are positive that you got and then just track any partials as an asterisk or a plus or even track all the partials and count those too. That's fine. But even then, you never know what counts as a completed rep or not. And there are some ways around this, but it almost is too much of a hassle to even be worth doing. Uh, and it's it just kind of makes you worried about your progression so much and you overthink that so much that you kind of forget the purpose of the lift is just to get stimulus, which is ultimately the purpose of any lift that we're using anyways. Tracking your progression and tracking your performance is only a tool, it's a measuring tool. It's not actually something that drives growth. So you have to remember that stimulus is ultimately what drives growth and progression is ultimately what indicates that you are growing in most cases. And I think when you let um, worrying about progression too much take over your mindset, it's easy to write off lists that you can't see progression on, especially if you put some form of emotional reward or attachment to your progression on paper. It's easy to not care about lists that you can't see progression on uh, clearly or progression that's very slow. And that's still kind of a, almost a spin-off take on how I view the squat bench deadlift progression and how people end up buying the, biasing those lifts in the program. Uh, because obviously with other lifts, you one, don't see progression as fast or it's a little bit more blurry um, because if a lift is lighter or it doesn't have a clear defined range of motion or lockout, very easy to just kind of neglect that lift. So there are some lifts, if you find that it's just such a pain to track your reps, I would encourage you to maybe stop tracking the reps at least for a little bit. Focus on pure stimulus and pushing that set as hard as you can, and you should grow. If you're doing everything else right and you're growing in other areas, you know what it takes to grow. So you should be able to pretty much just do that without actually logging it for lifts that are still beneficial but hard to track. So point number four, I, I completely messed up my numbers here. I put in two threes, so I'm at one, two, three, three, four, five, six. So. Point number four, uh, this isn't something I've touched on very much. I think I've talked about it in a Q&A here and there, but overall the 
Renaissance periodization mesocycle structure slash deloading and volume ramping, I have changed my mind on a little bit. Uh, I haven't changed my mind enough to the point where this is something I would actively include in my programming. So basically, the way they set up their mesocycles, and I'm not an expert on their programming, they could explain it much better than I could, but the general gist of it is you'll plan out a week of training or a block of training, basically a mesocycle. So a phase of training for X amount of weeks, say it's five weeks long, and then you take a deload after. When you deload, their theory is that you become desensitized to training, and then when you re-enter the, the following mesocycle, you're more, uh, I can't think of the right word, but I guess basically your, your training's more potent because you're desensitized. So as you're getting resensitized, you can either drop your volume a little bit lower or you can keep more reps in reserve. So basically you're either not doing as much work or you're not training as hard in terms of proximity to failure intensity in that definition. With this, I would say I have changed my mind on the volume aspect of it. I know that when I take a week off of either training entirely or off of training a specific muscle group for injury management or pain management, when I come back, I definitely can just instinctively feel that I don't require as much volume. So their volume ramping strategy with these deloads, it does make sense. However, the part that I still disagree on is the need for that frequent of a deload. So if you're training for hypertrophy, ideally you're training sustainable enough and pain-free enough to where you don't have to deload that regularly. So this isn't something you would be uh, including in your programming and pre-planning out this is more of a reactionary tool that you might have to use once twice maybe three times a year so it's not a big deal at all uh, but i do see where they're coming from and the whole desensitization resensitization thing just for my personal anecdote i have changed my mind on it so nothing revolutionary it's kind of a smaller point but i have changed my mind i think it's legit uh, the only part I do still disagree with this on is the RIR progressions uh, when you're entering a new phase after a deload or some time off or time on uh, maybe easier training. So yeah, basically deload. Uh, with this, I just don't see a reason to manipulate your reps and reserve. I think ultimately the main driver of growth is going to be mechanical tension. So how close are you training to failure? If you're not able to handle a whole ton of work, I would just decrease the volume. I think that's much more logical. Uh, no reason to throw another major uncertain variable like your reps and reserve into play when it, it just adds so much more confusion and ultimately if your proximity to failure is what determines how much stimulus you get, I just don't see a reason to mess with that. Number four, uh, wait, nope, this is number five. This is gonna mess me up. Number five, this is actually a lift, and this is one of one and a half to maybe two lifts if the if you count the last one as a lift. Uh, this is the AD press, and this is something that uh, was just me being pretty much incorrect in my own personal anecdote. So the AD press, the, the gym that I spent a lot of my time at, it's closed recently, unfortunately, but the gym where I spent a lot of time at had a seated overhead press and the back was incredibly steep to the point where you had to move the bar path around your face. You couldn't get your head out of the way because the back was up to here. So your head was stuck here. You had to either press directly in front of you. So there's a moment arm at the lockout or you just had to press out and around your face like this and then go to lockout above. 
uh, that is a super awkward and poorly designed piece of equipment. And I thought that most machine, or not machines, most seated overhead presses were like that. However, there is a very easy solution to this. It's just using an adjustable bench and putting the back angle slightly lower. Very straightforward. So usually using something like a 70 to 75 give or take degree incline for an interior delt press is great. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I may have said that doing a, a press solely dedicated to the anterior delts is just redundant in a lot of programs. And while there's still some truth to that, I don't think it's I don't think it's it's a smart idea to just neglect an entire muscle group just because it gets trained a little bit through other movements. So I think there's some nuance to needing to have a certain muscle be a prime mover for each muscle group for, for a specific lift. Uh, I would say for something like for your presses, yeah, your triceps work, but you should have lifts where your triceps are the prime mover. The front delts and maybe the glutes are kind of unique examples where they actually work pretty hard even as not technically primary movers, but still pretty high up there, like hardly even secondary movers to their respective lifts. So for something like a squat pattern, like a leg press, a squat press, a pendulum squat, a barbell squat, the glutes might not be the primary driver in a lot of those movements, but, uh, or compared to the quads, again, technique dependent, obviously but they'll still be trained heavily and you, you might not need a movement that you have set as the, the glutes being the prime mover. Same with the front delts. You might not need it, but I don't think it's a good idea just to write it off and say a blanket statement like the front delts don't need any work because they get hit hard on your chest training. There's truth to it, but if you have lagging front delts, then why not do an anterior delt press? Even if you don't have lagging front delts, the front delts look sick. They should be as jacked as possible. And not to mention this lift is cool for people that do and just enjoy lifting. And it also, depending on your technique and your setup, you can get some pretty good upper chest growth from it too. So uh, I don't really see an issue with it. I would say worst case scenario, if it is a redundant lift in your program, you will probably be fatigued at that point that you have it in your session anyways, to the point where you're not accumulating a ton of fatigue that will affect the rest of your training. Usually this would be trained after chest, but before triceps on a push day, for example. So it's not really going to impact your chest training or your tricep training. It might just be redundant worst case and best case, your front delts and upper chest grow very well from this lift. So I'm a big fan of it now. Uh, and I think Alex Leonidas, we have to thank for that because he popularized it, showed good technique and trains that lift incredibly hard. Number five, another thing that I changed my mind on is rep ranges. I used to be uh, very, I don't know what the right word is, but I guess very biased towards higher rep ranges. And I've definitely changed my mind on that, especially as I've learned more and experienced more about training in the lengthened position. A lot of the time when you have a lift set up to be lengthened biased, getting those grindy reps just feels better with heavier weight in a lower rep set. So I'm not saying reps one in the like the one through five range, that's a little bit too heavy to the point where you're actually potentially getting less growth, especially as you get closer to two or one. Uh, but I would say even ranges in like the six to eight, even five reps in very specific cases are totally viable and arguably optimal. Even though rep ranges 
don't matter that much. Uh, that's another thing. I also don't think rep ranges matter as much as I used to say they did. Um, I would still say for short biased movements, having a higher rep range is still going to be beneficial, but I wouldn't say as a blanket statement, higher reps are going to be better. So with length and biased movements in particular, getting in the six to eight, six to 10 range, totally fine. And I actually do program that uh, somewhere in that rep range for the majority of lengthened biased movements. That's definitely something that I've changed my mind on uh, since starting the channel. And the last one I have here, this is just, this is kind of a quick one. So I know I've promoted hammer strength machines in general uh, quite a bit on the channel. Not a whole ton, but hammer strength, I'm a pretty big fan of most of their equipment. I would say with their pressing, and this might sound a little bit nitpicky, with hammer strength presses, they are short biased. And again, in my experience of biasing uh, length and positions in my training, I'm not a huge fan of most hammer strength presses anymore. With that said, if you're making good progress using these hammer strength machines that are short and biased, by all means use them. And, and don't just change it out of your program because I told you I changed my mind on them. They're still a good lift and I would still program them in and I would still use them myself. Uh, but I would probably use it as more of a secondary press. And I'm not a, a huge fan of um, of having like a, almost like a, like a tier system or a hierarchy within your program for specific lifts. Uh, but I would say if you don't have them in now and you plan on using them, I would probably use them as a secondary press. I wouldn't use it as your primary press for the day, um, or at least for the week, at least for the week, but probably for the day I wouldn't use it. Um, as the primary mover that is. But either way, if you're making good progress using them now, this isn't a reason to necessarily change them. You can if you want, uh, but it's not even to the point where I would say it's not worth using. Like I still have one right there and I don't plan on getting rid of it anytime soon. Uh, I also have a nice pec deck that I'm sure you guys have noticed too. So hammer strength machines, pressing in particular, um, very short and biased. Uh, you can actually see here, so the plates start kind of low, and they, they move in a pendulum fashion. So they start out about 45 degrees down, and they end up uh, basically parallel to the ground uh, with the, the lever arm itself. So that means it's heaviest at the top at the lockout, when most people are going to be weakest anyways. So that's something I've changed my mind on. Um, and yeah, that's all I've got for today. So... If you have any questions or anything you've changed your mind on, let me know. I'll keep the video at that, and I will see you guys in the next one.